Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church, and I'm delighted to welcome you. All of you in Cafe Worship this morning, all of you joining us by way of audio or video podcast, can't believe that you found us, but we're delighted that you're going to be a part of this service with us. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. This morning, Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Back in the day, a couple that went to our church, Chip and Tracy Jenkins, had a manufactured home business up on the highway right next to the, uh, uh, to the interstate there. Horton Homes, I think it was called. Uh, they had that place there for a long time, and it was a good business. Uh, among other things, while they were selling the manufactured homes, for a while they sold storm shelters. Anybody remember that? And they had this big fiberglass uh, egg-looking thing. Uh, it was a circle, perfect circle, and it had stairs. And they had it up on, a, up on a, a, a display sort of staircase so that people could inspect it inside and out. They sold storm shelters while they sold manufactured homes. Chip says one day this lady came by to look at the storm shelter because she was terrified of tornadoes. Anybody with her? She's just terrified of tornadoes. And she liked the idea of having an indestructible storm shelter in, in, in her backyard. And that's what Chip was selling, and he was telling her all about it, how this thing is made of fiberglass, it's indestructible. Uh, when a, a siren goes off, a tornado warning, you and your family and your neighbors and whoever else you want, y'all just climb inside this bubble and you just wait out the storm. You'll be completely safe. And, and I mean, this lady was sold. She's scared of storms and, and finally found her answer. But, but then right before the final sale, she asked one more question. Now, again, she was ready to buy. But here's her question. She said, how do I know where I'll be when the storm is over? And Chip said, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry? She said, how do I know where I'll be when it's all over? And Chip said, well, you'll be in the storm shelter. She said, but how do I know where it'll be? See, here's the thing. It took him way too long to figure out. She didn't understand that you bury the thing in the ground. She thought that you just climbed in it, and then it just sort of rolled around in the storm. <laughs> <laughs> it just sort of, you know, blew around, rolled around, and when, when everything got still, you would come out, but you don't know where you'd be, understand? <laughs> and the funny thing is, she was ready to buy it. I mean, you know, she was buying that thing and, and rolling by your house, I guess, in, in the next tornado. Uh, here's the thing. Revelation is written so that you will know that there is a coming storm, and it is going to be fierce. That's the point. However, those who believe in Christ have a shelter, you understand? And you should know where you'll be when it's over. This is the point of Revelation. It is a book of encouragement. It is a book of hope. And you need to learn how to read it so that you can see Jesus on every page and so that you can see the bright light of hope that it is. Revelation chapter 13 is a difficult passage because if you just read it, it sounds more like a nightmare than a message of hope. But I promise you, when you're living the nightmare, chapter 13 becomes the, the, the beacon of hope. Now remember, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. John is writing to seven uh, churches in ancient Turkey, and all of those churches would have received this letter. They would have probably read it out loud in a worship service, and John would have expected that they would understand it. 
Understand? He's not writing something that he thinks nobody will ever get or be able to interpret. He expects that they will. So the key for us is always to try to at least first pray and put ourselves back in the situation, the very first readers, so that we can sort of hear it the way they would have heard it. That's at least where we start. It can't mean for us what it never would have meant to them. So we want to figure out what it would have meant for them. So keep that in mind as we look at Revelation chapter 13. Now, this is in a larger section of the book of Revelation where John is having a series of visions. Now, the visions don't necessarily go in chronological order. They're not necessarily telling you a story. But in this particular instance, when we pick up in chapter 13, we're in the middle of a larger vision. This sort of is telling a larger story, but John gives you little episodes or or, or glimpses into this larger story of the dragon. Now, the dragon itself is described back in chapter 12. And also the scripture tells us plainly who the dragon is. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. The dragon is the devil. So so the dragon in this vision represents Satan. Okay. Now chapter 12 tells us first off how the dragon tried to stop Jesus even before he was born. It's an amazing Christmas story when you read it. In chapter 12, how, how the dragon, the devil tried to snatch up baby Jesus the moment that he was born. Understand. But he could not. He could never defeat Christ. He pursued Christ throughout the earth. He pursued the woman who is the church throughout the earth. The, John even tells us the story of how the dragon, the devil, uh, uh, comes up in a great rebellion. in in heaven and is cast out of heaven. All of that's chapter 12. So the dragon, the devil, has been trying to make war against Christ, whom he cannot touch. And then he's tried to make war against heaven's armies who defeated him and, and have thrown him out of heaven. So now, chapter 13, the dragon is cast down to earth and he's gonna make war on who? Whom? Yeah, on those whom Christ loves, on those for whom Christ died. If you can't get to Christ, you try to target the ones whom Christ loves, and that would be the church. So the dragon makes war on the church. We're going to start in verse 13, all right? Chapter 13, verse 1. I'm sorry, chapter 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns, and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had the feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion, and the dragon, the dragon, gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. So the beast is operating on whose power? Yeah, the dragon, the devil, all right? Verse 3, I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshiped the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worshiped the beast. Who is as great as the beast, they exclaimed. Who is able to fight against him? Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God, and he was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. And he spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering the name uh, and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belonged to this world worshiped the beast. 
They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, the book that belongs to the Lamb who was slain. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Anyone who is destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. This means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. One day, Casey and I were at the state fair in in Louisville, Kentucky, and we were walking through the, the farm display, which is just awesome. All the animals, we love that. Um, anyway, as we were walking, there was a crowd of people. Uh, there was this group of ladies in front of us, ladies, you know, with big hair and big handbags. It's Kentucky. Uh, big hair and big handbags walking in front of us. And all of a sudden, this, this spider about this big, about this big, just came out of the ceiling and landed right in the middle of one of their big hairdos. It was the greatest thing I've ever seen in my whole life. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I'm like that, but oh my goodness, I'm just thanking Jesus that I'm there to, to see this lady. I mean, because she, she, in just a few seconds, she tears her hair to pieces trying to get that spider. But the thing is, as soon as it dropped and she fought and she found it and fought it, it, it went back up. Boop. And so Casey and I saw this whole thing, and so I'm thinking, this is great. This is a fake spider on a string. I know that now. I've seen the whole thing, but I've got to find, I've got to trace the string now. I want to know who's, I want to shake their hand, you understand? (laughs) I want to find whoever is pulling the string. So we looked, and and the string went straight up in in this giant, giant arena, and and over a rafter, and and we looked, and we could see it, it was fishing line, went straight across this way and all the way down to the corner, and there were these little boys, just these little boys over in the corner. I guess their parents were in the fair or something, but they spent their whole day just waiting, waiting for the right people, you know, to come by just to drop that spider on. It, it, I'm sorry things like that uh, entertain me so, um, but it was good. But the, but the point is you could see the spider, but, but it was actually the boys pulling the string, understand? And this is what we have in chapter 13, that this beast out of the sea arises, and we're going to talk about who, who he may be. The beast out of the sea arises, but understand, it's still the dragon, it's still the devil who's pulling the string. It, it is the devil, it, it is Satan who himself is now working through the, this beast. Now remember what the beast has come to do. Remember what he says, the dragon took a stand on the shore beside the sea. He's been cast out of heaven. He, he's actually got a war against Christ. Christ, but, but he can't in any way really get to Christ. So now he turns his fury on the ones whom Christ loves. He turns his fury on the church. So understand that the basic message here about the last days is that the last days will bring a final all-out assault on the church. This is what is communicated here. Don't miss this very, very important fact of the last days. The last days will bring a, a final all-out assault on the church. This is what the devil will do. His war is against God. His war is actually is in heaven, but he's cast out of heaven, and he cannot fight God. The devil is no match for God. We'll talk about this more next week when we get to the final war. There is no final war, understand? Because the devil is no match. It's not like in the battle against good versus evil that, that, that this is somehow even. The, the devil himself is a creature that, that God made, created as an angel of light, understand, but he's still a creature. And, and, and it's nothing for God to defeat him. So understand, there is no actual war. He really can't get to God a, at all. So he focuses his, his aggression upon those who can reach it, and that would be us. That would be the church. 
And in Revelation chapter 13, what we see are, are, are two strategies, the two primary ways that the devil, that Satan, that the dragon tries to come up against a church. Two ways. And the first one we find in verses 1 through 10. Now notice what it says. I saw a beast, a monster, rising up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And written on each head were names that blasphemed God. The beast looked like a leopard. It had the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. What is this? Well, what, what is this? Now, again, you're missing the point if you try to cram this into some sort of literal figure, a, a literal beast coming up out of the ocean with heads and, and horns. It's symbolic. It, it's symbolic. And understand, the very first readers who, whom John is addressing, those seven churches, John would expect that they would understand this. They would be able to read this code. Now, for one thing, they know their Old Testament very, very well. And if you've read the book of Daniel, John is using Old Testament language here. So that part isn't as strange to them as perhaps it may be to some of you who don't know the Old Testament well. So understand that. But also, he's using the language of the time. Now, when, when the churches, when the original churches in the Roman Empire hear this, immediately they're going to understand who we're talking about. I saw that one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. The worship, the dragon for giving the beast such power, and they also worship the, the, the beast. Who's the beast? What is the beast? What? What are we supposed to understand here? Very honestly, this first strategy is that the evil one fights the church through the power of the state. Of all things, the beast represents the power of the state. It's government. And in this particular instance, the early churches wouldn't have missed it at all. This has got to be the Roman Empire. They're going to recognize the beast by the signs that John gives them. This is the Roman Empire. This is their beast. You understand? This is where they live. And they understand this. They're going to get this. Those seven heads represent the emperors. And they recognize them. And make no mistake. When he goes down and he gives a little detail about one of the horns looked like it had been fatally wounded, looked like it had been killed, but then it was revived somehow. Understand, they know exactly what he's talking about. You and I may not, but, but, but they would. Now, the, the Roman Empire, as we said, has become uh, turned against the Christians, primarily because of the way the state and the church are on a collision course. The emperors have been trying to bring unity in the empire by, of all things, trying to assert what we would call emperor worship. Domitian, who was the emperor at the time John is writing, Domitian had declared himself the son of God. And Domitian would force people to declare that he was Lord. Now, you could go ahead and worship any other God that you wanted to worship. He wasn't exclusive in it, but you did need to be willing occasionally to show up at the imperial worship and fall down before his statue. You had to worship Caesar. Now, here's the thing. Domitian wasn't the first emperor to do that. Nero was. Have you ever, ever heard of the emperor Nero? Nero was crazy. 
Nero was brutal. And if you think Domitian was bad, and Domitian was bad, Nero was worse. Now, this is probably 20, 30 years before John is writing, but everybody still remembers Nero. Nero was the first emperor that really persecuted the Christians, and he was worse. You go back and read. Nero would do things like this. If he wanted to have a garden party in the backyard of his palace, he would take a Christian. He would dip the Christian in tar. He would elevate this Christian high up on a pole and set him on fire. He would light his garden at night with Christians burning high on poles. That's just history. I don't make that up. He burned them alive in his backyard just for a spectacle, just for a show. He, he killed his own mother. I, I mean, Nero w- w- was, was brutal. And actually, things have gotten a little bit better since Nero. But, but then there's this whole legend back in their day about Nero. He was such an evil, so, such a feared leader that when he died, and they think he died by suicide, but there was a lot of mystery around that. And so the legend started being shared that, that Nero was still alive and that somehow he would come back. They were always afraid that Nero would return or that maybe somehow Domitian was Nero incarnate. So do you see that? When John says, now one of the heads looks like it had died. It looked like it had been fatally wounded, but then it had been healed. You understand? They all understand that's Nero. That's Nero. Nero's back. So what you see here is that John is trying to talk about how the devil fights against us. And one of the ways the devil fights against us is through the power of the state, the government. So the question becomes for us, when we read Revelation chapter 13, is this beast just a symbol of Nero and and Domitian? Is Is it just a symbol of the Roman Empire? Because it absolutely is a symbol of the Roman Empire. But is it only the Roman Empire, or is it also a a figure, a, a government that's yet to come? Is it something that's already happened, or is it something that's still yet to come for us? What do you think? I say both. I say absolutely both. It's absolutely both. Now, some of you who've read Revelation or been involved in a lot of Revelation studies, you're probably familiar with the title Antichrist, the the Antichrist. Now, some of you are going to argue with me, but go back and read Revelation. Revelation never, ever uses the word Antichrist. Never. It's just not in here. Now, I'm not saying that it's not biblical, but I'm saying it's not in Revelation. You never find the word or the title Antichrist in the book of Revelation. And so that kind of confuses some people, but, but most people, when they get to Revelation chapter 13, and you see this beast out of the sea, most people say, well, well, well that's the Antichrist. Is that fair to say? I think probably, I think we need to say some other things first. I don't have this scripture on the slide, but turn back a couple of pages to the book of 1 John chapter 2. Go back to 1 John chapter 2. Verse 18. Now again, this is the same John. John who wrote Revelation is writing here the book of 1 John. It's just a letter he wrote to one of the churches. And this is where he uses the word Antichrist. So so don't be confused. John knows the word, and he knows about the Antichrist, but this is where he uses the label. 1 John 2, verse 18, and this is what he said. Dear children, the last hour is here. 
You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. That's really, really interesting. We know that the Antichrist is coming, but we also know that there have been a whole lot of them already. That's very interesting. John sort of speaks of a spirit of the Antichrist, and the principle is that the spirit of the Antichrist is at work in every single age. So, when you go back to the days of the early church, that spirit of the Antichrist was obvious in the Roman Empire. How the empire promised a lot of prosperity and peace, but from the very beginning there was a collision course set. The church and the state were going to collide because the devil will inevitably try to use the power of the state to attack the church. He just does. It's his oldest trick. The spirit of the Antichrist is at work in every single age. But get this, the one who comes in the last days will be utterly unrestrained in his power to make war against God's people. So you can say that the spirit of the Antichrist is is always present. And one way or the other, there are figures throughout history that you would say, oh my goodness, that guy's like the Antichrist. We would say Hitler is, is, is like the Antichrist. Nero, Domitian, the history is full of leaders who just absolutely were evil and brutal. And that spirit of the Antichrist is obvious in them. But, but understand, you haven't seen anything yet. You haven't seen anything yet. Absolutely not. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 is a really good place to go to, to find out even more about this woman called the Antichrist. Now, Paul is writing in Second Thessalonians, and he doesn't use the label Antichrist. He doesn't use that title. Paul's title is, anybody know? Man of lawlessness. Paul talks about the man of lawlessness. In, in, in Thessalonica, apparently there's this rumor going around that, that, that Jesus has already come back, that the second coming has already occurred. So Paul writes 2 Thessalonians in part to help him understand that, that there's no way. The second coming hasn't already occurred. You did not miss it. But, but, but what he says is don't be fooled for that day will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So Paul kind of gives this as, as a sign of the last days. First, there's going to be a great rebellion. The word he uses there is, is apostasy. It means falling away. So Paul says before that last day, I mean the real last day comes, there's going to be a tremendous falling away from God, falling away from the faith. Isn't that interesting? A, a falling away. Now again, as as, as people who take the Word of God seriously and all of those passages in Scripture that assure us that our salvation is secure, I, I don't believe that, that a person who's actually a Christian can lose their salvation, lose their, lose their relationship with God. Scripture says no one can snatch us out of His hand. So this falling away, we're not talking about true believers who, who somehow lose their faith or, or lose their salvation. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about this tremendous turning away from God. If you go back and read what John says in 1 John about the Antichrist, when he says that spirit of the Antichrist, he's really talking about people in the church. So, so the amazing thing is there's this suggestion, if you put all of these things together, that that spirit of the Antichrist somehow, you actually can even find it in the church and, and possibly it comes out of the church. 
This beast out of the sea ends up with a great amount of power. It's a spiritual kind of power. And notice how everybody runs after him. He's very likely to be a religious figure. But it, it does sort of trouble me that this idea of a great apostasy, a great falling away. What that means is in places like the United States where there's still some social pressure to go to church, there's still a little bit of, 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 of peer pressure to at least act Christian or be a member of some church. That's just going to one day end. The closer you get to the very end, according to Revelation, according to everything else, the lines just get drawn very, very clearly. And those who are committed to the dragon, the beast, the devil, they don't always know that it's him that they're worshiping, but it's, it's he that they're worshiping, understand. They're just going to be sealed in that. And those who follow Christ, they'll be sealed, but there's not going to be a lot of middle ground anymore. Now, I, I say this because I love all of you more than you can possibly know, but, but I just have to say, a lot of you live in the middle ground. You live in that middle ground. Your commitment to Christ is very, very thin, very thin. You've given Christ your Sunday morning, but not much else, and not every Sunday if it's raining, you know, or if it's a day after prom. So you live in this sort of middle ground where your commitment is, 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 is not very strong. And so the question becomes, do you know Christ at all? Have you fully committed to him? Is he truly Lord and, and master ruler of your life? But because it doesn't seem so. But because the fact of the matter is most people in the United States, most people who go to church, they, they populate this middle ground where there's not a lot of enthusiasm, not a lot of actual devotion to Christ. And, and I think when Scripture says there's going to be this amazing rebellion, this turning away, I think what you'll see is all of those people who've always sort of sat on the fence, they're eventually just going to take the side. You understand? And the majority of them are going to align themselves against God. Now, now understand, if this were to happen in our lifetime, we're talking about some of you. This great apostasy, this great turning away from God, and the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, the, the Antichrist, this figure at the end, the one John calls the beast out of the sea. He's going to be revealed. Paul goes on in Thessalonians to say that, that, that up until this point, he's restrained. That there is, this, there is this holding him back. But in that last day, there will be no restraint. He, he will be totally unrestrained in his power to make war against God and God's people. Let's go to chapter 13, verse 11. Let's read on. There's another beast. I want you to see him. Revelation 13, verse 11. Now again, the dragon's making war against the people of God. The question is, how does he do that? The first strategy is with the power of the state. And in the last day, you'll see this political figure, this antichrist rise up. But, but get this, here's his other strategy, and it starts in verse 11. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. He did astounding miracles, even making fire flash down to earth from the sky while everyone was watching. 
And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, he deceived all the people who belonged to this world. He ordered the people to make a great statue of the first beast who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. He was then permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak. Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. He required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. Yeah, would it freak y'all out to know that like my credit card, you know, you got that, that verification code on the back? Should I, should I give it back? 666, y'all. Makes me nervous. Yeah, you ever, that number has taken on a sort of uh, life in, in, in our culture. People who don't know anything about the Bible will often know 666. All those Omen movies when I was a kid with that little creepy kid, Damien, who was the Antichrist with 666. Yeah, I mean, that's nightmare stuff. But, but what is it here? It's the Word of God here. And, and there's a warning and, and an exhortation to have wisdom. What is this about? Now, again, there's this second beast, and John is trying to talk about the, the dragon who's making war against God's people. And the second strategy here is that the evil one fights the church through spiritual deception. First, there is this political beast, and then there's this spiritual beast who rises up. Now, again, in, in John's day, those early churches, they understand what this is about. Because there was literally a statue erected in a number of these towns, Ephesus being one of the major ones. There was a, a, a giant statue of Caesar erected right there in Ephesus, and it was hollow. It, it, it was hollow. Again, you don't have to believe me. Go Google this stuff. Understand it. it it's just there. It, it was common in the ancient world. Idols were often made hollow so that the priest could sneak upstairs underneath and get inside. Now, why would the priest want to be inside a hollow statue? So you can talk. Yeah, you make the statue talk. Now, in Ephesus, in Pergamum, in most of these cities where John is addressing the church, there were imperial priests present, and their job was to enforce the worship of Caesar. The imperial priest was an actual person in all of these towns, and his job was to make sure people worshiped Caesar. Now, they would climb up inside the statue, they would make the statue live, and, and again, this is exactly what they would have thought as John talks about this. He was permitted to give life to the statue so that it could speak, and, and, and it goes on and on and on. He did astounding miracles. Archaeologists have, have uncovered this kind of mess. You know, they would have pulleys and ropes and all kinds of stunts and tricks so that you could fool people into thinking that the idol was alive, the statue could move, understand? And people would just be freaked out. Understand, people who don't know the Lord will believe almost anything or nothing. But, but, but they would fall for that sort of deception. And this is the point. The devil in his attack against the church, he uses spiritual deception. So honestly, he's got two tricks, the political power, the power of the state, and then spiritual deception. It's probably the only two tricks he needs. 
because they work. Now, let's do the number 666 because you'll, you'll accuse me of being a chicken if I don't take it on. So let's take it on. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast. It's the number of a man, number of his name. Number is 666. Now, remember in the book of Revelation, the, the, the number of God, the perfect number is the number seven. The number seven. So six is, is, is imperfect. It's falling short. It, it becomes the number of, of evil or the number of, of uh, anything that falls short. Understand? It's the number of sin. So this man's number is 666. It's like three strikes and you're out. Understand? He's always falling short. This is the number of evil, 666. But, but, but understand also, well, you know from school that like in, in the ancient Roman days, they had an alphabet, they had Roman numerals, but, but, but the Greeks, the, the Jews didn't. The Jews didn't. They didn't have separate numbers. Instead, they used letters for numbers. So anytime you had a word, it was a string of letters, but it was also a string of numbers. They used the very same figures for letters and numbers. So everybody's name has a number. You understand? Am I making sense? Every string of letters is also a string of numbers. And so what John is saying here is if you take this man's name and if you add up all of the numbers of his name, you'll end up with 666. So it's kind of a clue. It's a way of saying his name without saying his name because he gives a number of his name. Now, I don't know what else the number means, but in John's day and for the ancient churches who would have read this, they would immediately know that those numbers are the number of the name Caesar Nero. It's the number of Nero's name. So you understand, all of this points back to things in their day. 666 was literally the number of the name Caesar Nero. Now, it may be more than that. But, but that's definitely how the first churches, the first readers would have understood that. This is Nero. There's also evidence that, that, that again, that there's persecution of the churches, and it surrounds this emperor worship. It surrounds this, this work of the imperial priest who's there at the statue enforcing worship. And we do know that in the ancient world, it, it was not unheard of at all that, that you would have someone take a mark or a tattoo or some sort of document to show that they had participated in state worship, and that way they could have access to the marketplace. So it sounds like what was happening in, in the churches in Ephesus and cities like that, the imperial priests would force people to come to worship the, the Caesar. And when they worshiped, they would receive a mark, either his name or that number, either on their person, on their hand or forehead. It seems to be what John is saying. And if you did not have that mark, if you didn't participate in emperor worship, then you couldn't have any place in the market. You couldn't buy or sell. You couldn't buy food, that sort of thing. So understand, this is what they're going through. This is their experience. Now, I'm also saying that this is the kind of thing we'll see at the end, but it's also what we saw back in the Roman Empire. This is what John is pointing them back toward. This is the Roman Empire, but also John wants you to trace that string back and understand that the one behind all of this is the dragon himself, the devil himself. So when you fall down and worship Caesar, it may seem like an innocent thing to do. You may not mean it in your heart. They don't ask you to mean it. They just want you to do it. But, but John is trying to say, when you fall down before Caesar, you're actually worshiping the beast. You're actually worshiping the dragon. Do not be deceived here. 
The other thing you notice when you're reading through Revelation here is the way the devil always sort of, sort of, if you can understand the use of the word, he apes God. He apes. He's the ape of God, as the ancient church fathers used to say. What's that mean to say that Satan is the ape of God? What's a monkey do? Monkey, monkey see, monkey do. Yeah, the devil, he, he's always wanted to take the place of God, so he imitates God. So even in this passage here, you see this unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Understand there's this unholy trinity here. And the devil always tries to do somehow what Jesus has done. So you notice that his, his false prophet, this second beast, uh, it looks like a lamb, but it's actually still got the voice of a dragon. Always falls short in the imitation. But also, I, I just love this. You, you see this place where all of those who belong to the beast, they get marked with a number, and that number is 666. But go right down to chapter 14, verse 1. Then I saw the lamb, the real lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him were all of his people, 144,000, who had his what? Name. They had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So understand the symbol here? It's not so much in the last days, everybody's going to be forced to get a tattoo on their head. I, I don't, I, I'm sort of doubting that. But John wants to talk about this principle of being spiritually sealed. It's a spiritual seal. And the lamb, Jesus himself, has sealed his people. That means he knows them by name. And he puts his name on them. Understand, the, the devil gives you a number, but the lamb gives you his name. I just sort of like that. It's that picture of being sealed. It's that picture of being known by name and protected. The, the devil seals his people, and the lamb seals his. The thing that you and I always have to come up with, those in all of the scriptures, all of the passages about the end times, the Bible always says they're here. They're here. John in 1 John says that these are the last days. You know the Antichrist is coming. There have already been a bunch of them. There's still one coming. It, the, the last days are here. There was always this sense that we're living them. And indeed we are. And that's why whenever Jesus preached about the end times, there was always this incredible warning for the people. A warning to keep watch, a warning to be aware, a warning to be wise, to use wisdom. Go back to a passage where Jesus was preaching in Matthew chapter 24. This is the longest sermon in 24 where Jesus himself talks about the last days. Here's a part of it. Notice what Jesus says. Unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person would survive. But it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. This is Jesus talking. And he says, if these days weren't going to be cut short, there'd be nobody left. The, the, the false prophets, the, 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 the false messiahs will come, and if it were even possible, they, 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 would, they would deceive God's chosen people. If the devil's big strategy is spiritual deception, then I just want to warn you all, you need to put a little more energy 
into learning how to discern the, the truth from a lie. Because honestly, some of us aren't very good at it. We sort of believe anything Dr. Oz says, you, you understand? And, and you have to be a little more discerning. Honestly, some of us are sitting ducks. You don't know the truth. You don't read the Bible for yourself. You don't listen when someone else preaches. You're in danger, I'm telling you. Because since you don't know the truth very well, you won't be able to tell the truth from a lie. And indeed, it's not just that that these may be the final last days. These are still all the days you have. So as far as you're concerned, these are the last days. You've only got the days left of your life. And so it's going to be in this life, your life, where the devil comes up to attack you. He will use these very same strategies, the power of the state, the power of society, spiritual deception. And, and some of you, he doesn't even have to work very hard. You believe anything. And you don't know enough of the Bible. You, you don't know Jesus well enough to, to discern with his spirit, with his presence, what's, what's true and what's a lie. Does any of this not concern you? Because whether or not Jesus comes in our lifetime or in the lifetime of our children or our children's children, I'm still telling you, this is the only life you get. And in this life, the devil has come up against you. His strategy is to try to destroy you for this life and the life to come. It's a war. It's a battle going on. And whether or not you think you're in it, you're in it. You think you've staked out this middle ground where Jesus can do his thing and the devil will do his thing and you're just going to do your thing. But I'm telling you, there is no middle ground. There is none. The message of Revelation is that there is this storm coming. It's going to be fierce. The message of Revelation, though, is that for those who belong to Jesus, for those who truly know him, You'll have a shelter. You'll be sealed by him. Nothing will be able to snatch you out of his hand in this life or the life to come. But if you don't know him, if you don't know the truth, you will fall for the lie. And if you don't know him, you will be lost for eternity. This is the message of Scripture. It is a message of hope for all those who believe, but for those who do not believe, it is a message of damnation. As John would say, let all of those with ears to hear, listen and understand what the Spirit is saying to the church. Pray with me. Lord, there's just not enough holy fear of you in the world today. There's not enough holy fear of you in the church. Lord, we don't think much at all about the fact that the world is passing away. We don't think much at all about the fact that you have said that even today you could come back like a thief, Lord. We don't think much about that. We sort of take all of these matters casually as if we can make up our mind later, as if maybe somehow in the end we will somehow sneak through on our goodness. But Lord, there is no goodness on our part that will somehow buy us a place in the life to come. Lord, we know that the devil is at work all around us. He is at work 
in governments. He is at work, Lord, in society. He will use every kind of power he can to try to manipulate and, and, and deceive us, Lord. He will also use spiritual deception. He'll use religious language. He will infiltrate the church. He will speak through preachers who do not believe, Lord. He will pray upon those who don't know the truth themselves, Lord, and they will inevitably fall for the lie. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would somehow know and seal all of us in this house. Lord Jesus, I pray that those within the sound of my voice will learn to know the truth so that they will not fall for the lie. I pray, Lord Jesus, that they will allow themselves to be fully devoted to you. Lord Jesus, sometimes we hear these things and we're frightened. We're, we're frightened about news of an antichrist. We're frightened about the news of earthquakes and wars. We're frightened about what might happen, Lord. We are afraid of all of the wrong things. Help us, Lord Jesus, to fear only you, that we may discover that in fearing you, we have nothing left to fear. Help us, Lord Jesus, to fear you to love you, to serve you, to live our lives for you, that we might face this coming storm and be with you when the storm is ended. We pray these things in your precious name.